Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And though it may not necessarily look like it out there or feel like it out there, this weekend marks the official start of spring, which means that sometime soon, or so we hope anyway, flowers will start to bud, saplings will burst through the ground, and maybe, just just maybe, those cherry blossoms will burst into bloom. So in honor of the new, the young, the up-and-coming, we're devoting today's show to youth. We're calling it The Next Generation, and over the next hour, we'll meet a budding harmonica player who isn't letting blindness get in the way of a bright future. How many different keys do you have? A, B, C, D, D, E, E, F, Q. Wow. We'll tag along with a seventh-generation Maryland farmer. I'd like to just really build that community of, of shopping straight from the farm. And we'll meet a young entrepreneur with a creative prescription for text regret syndrome. All those times when you sent a message and you said, oh, shoot, I wish I could get that back. Well, now you can. We'll begin our show in a rural corner of Montgomery County, Maryland, near the C&O Canal, not too far from the old Seneca Quarry. That quarry produced the red sandstone you see in the Smithsonian Castle on the National Mall. It also produced the stone you see in the Seneca Schoolhouse, a one-room structure built in 1866 to educate the children of local farmers, canal workers, and stonecutters from the quarry. And inside that schoolhouse, instructor Miss Darby... Is starting the day All right. with 27 fourth grade students. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Let's have a little bow. And that day, by the way. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. And a little curtsy. Very good. Is March 13th, 1880. You may be seated. The students sit in wooden desks, boys to the right of a crackling pot bellied stove, girls to the left. In her high-necked blouse and bustled skirt, Miss Darby stands at the blackboard, right below a portrait of the current President of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, I know many of you are helping your parents with chores before school, so please put out your fingers. I just want to check and make sure you've washed up. We can't have any dirt coming in unwashed hands from chores, but my dear, what is on your fingernails? What's on the girls' fingernails is polish bright red nail polish, something you didn't really see in the United States until the 1920s. Did it get smashed? Oh, dear, that looks awfully painful. And you too, dear. And here, perhaps, is our first hint that we're not in the year 1880. No, our students are from Cedar Grove Elementary in Germantown, Maryland. They're on a field trip at the Seneca Schoolhouse Museum. You walk through the door here and you forget you're in 2015. Maureen O'Connell directs the Historic Medley District, the nonprofit that brought the schoolhouse back to life after decades of neglect. For nearly 35 years, the Seneca Schoolhouse Museum has drawn public, private, and homeschool students from Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. What I find so fantastic and heartwarming about this is children come here and they find out that they don't need their phones, their iTablets, their computers. They're actually learning here in the methods used in 1866. Not only that, but they're actually portraying pupils from the era. Miss Darby, an actual teacher from the time, portrayed today by local resident Anna Glenn, has the students introduce themselves in character at the start of class. Yes, dear? My name is George. In the summer, I live in the canal boat while the canal is frozen. My father cuts the sandstone into big blocks that get sent down this canal to Washington City. 
So, children, we must be very kind to George today, as it might be his last day with us. He lives on the canal boat, and as you know, the canal is no longer frozen, and he may be having to move on. So, please be very kind to George today. Is that clear? Yes, Did you notice that? The enthusiastic, yes, ma'am? That's part of the Seneca Schoolhouse experience, too. In the late 1800s, the Maryland State Board of Education mandated lessons in good behavior. The consequence for bad behavior was the dunce cap. And you'll find one of those at the schoolhouse, along with the requisite stool in the corner. And by the way, children, you are being very well behaved. Not a single one of you has been in the dunce today. Whereas yesterday, all of you were in the dunce at one point or another, it seemed. Especially the boys. Reading was another compulsory subject. Today's class is using the pocket-sized volume students used in 1880, McGuffey's first eclectic reader. All right, please get out your readers and turn to page 27. Then comes handwriting, as Miss Darby shows the children how to write cursive letters on their little chalk slates. A is around, up, down, up. Please say it with me as you write on your board. Around, up, down. The students also do mathematics. Four times one is four. Four times two is eight. Four times and since it's the end of the week, they observe the Seneca Schoolhouse tradition of the Friday spelling bee. Your word is came. Came. That is correct. Pam Cromwell is the real fourth grade teacher of our class from Cedar Grove. She says her students prepared for today's trip using information sent by the historic Medley District, like details about the characters they'd play, the classroom rules, even lunch. We talked about that also from the awesome information we got, and we went over how there were no such thing as sandwiches, peanut butter wasn't invented, and they were all looking at me like I'd lost my mind. But some of them got seriously into it and tried to figure out how to eat as authentically as they could. So what are some examples? They found baskets to carry their food. They have little towels or handkerchiefs. And to Cromwell's delight, some also have costumes. Long skirts and hair bows on the girls and knee-length breeches and woolen caps on the boys. The parents actually took some of the information that we were given And they created these costumes themselves. The historic Medley District designed the Schoolhouse Museum's curriculum for fourth graders because in Montgomery County, the Civil War era used to fall under the fourth grade lesson plan. But as Pam Cromwell notes, that's changed. Her fourth graders are now studying the period of 1492 to 1763. The explorers coming from Europe and the original settlements. So this is a little bit ahead of what they would have had. On the other hand, it gives them a feeling for history. And that, says Anna Glenn, a.k.a. Miss Darby, is what the Seneca Schoolhouse experience is all about. Students have been learning the same things for hundreds and hundreds of years. It might look a little bit different, but they're all learning to read and learning times tables and history. I want them to remember that and... That's what I want to teach here. Shortly before the clock strikes two, Miss Darby has the students sit down, close their eyes. And think about all the boys and girls that have been sitting in these desks in this schoolhouse since it was built in 1866. When they open their eyes again, you can open your eyes. Anna Glenn welcomes them to the present. Back into March 13th, 2015. And the hope is they'll remember this day when they brought the past to the present and the present to the past, whatever the future holds. ¶¶
While we're on the topic of schools and schooling, over the past few months here on Metro Connection, we've been exploring charter schools, schools which receive public funding but operate independently of the traditional public school system. In Washington, D.C., charters educate nearly half of all school-age children. But some big questions are swirling around charter schools, particularly in terms of the students they choose to enroll and how those students fare in the classroom. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza joins us now to tell us more. Hi, Kavitha. Hi, Rebecca. All right, so let's start with the issue of who is attending charter schools. Now, it's my understanding that charters use a lottery system, unlike the traditional public schools. They do, but research shows charter schools nationally are educating fewer special needs students than traditional public schools do. But how can that be if if it's a first-come, first-serve lottery system to get in? Well, when parents call about the schools, they might be told there are no services for special education children, or they might be encouraged to attend a different school, or even once they get in, they might be counseled out. In D.C. just a few years ago, some advocates filed a complaint with the Department of Justice claiming that charter schools educated only 11% of children with special needs, while the traditional school system served 18%. And according to the complaint, this disparity was especially high in the case of children with the most needs. That led to a lot of changes. And what are some of those changes? Well, the Charter School Board says more recent data show they're doing better. In 2013, charter schools were serving roughly the same percentage of special needs students as D.C. public schools, 13%. The schools have also implemented a mystery shopper program. I'll let Scott Pearson, the executive director of the Public Charter School Board, tell us what that means. So we launched what we call our mystery shopper program, where we have staffers call charter schools posing as parents of students with disabilities and record their answers. And we told the schools we were going to do this because the intention was not to catch them. The intention was to have them act appropriately. And we've been doing this now for three years, and the number of schools that we find give inappropriate answers has gone down every year, and this year it was only like two. Also, charters are publishing a lot more information about things like admissions, discipline, and test scores. So individual charter school board members aren't just getting information from an executive director who says everything's fine. We've made the use of data in our office a real religion. We have these monthly deep dives on data. For example, we just had one for the month ending in January, and we found that there were three or four schools where they were suspending students with disabilities at more than twice the rate that they were suspending traditional students. And so rather than waiting until the end of the year, we're able to call that school right away, call in their board, and address those issues. And what we find is is when we have these informal conversations with schools that say, we're seeing your data, this is what we're seeing, immediately the, the behavior improves. And yet we're not coming in and putting in mandates or telling them what to do. Pearson says when people apply to open a new charter school in D.C., they have to describe in detail how they plan to serve students with disabilities. Otherwise, they just won't be approved by the charter school board. I'm wondering, might the size of charter schools have anything to do with the issues surrounding students with disabilities? I mean, most charter schools are are smaller, right? Yes, the size of the schools is definitely part of the challenge. Individual schools may not have the specialized resources or economies of scale, so they're working on a strategy used by the Denver public schools. In Denver, charter schools have about the same percentage of students with disabilities as district-run schools do. About 1.5% of that population is students with severe disabilities. 
those students are in regular charter schools where they can still participate in, say, art, music, physical education. And then they can go to special education centers or satellite centers organized regionally for specialized instruction. This is Josh Drake, a director in the Student Services Division of the Denver District. We think many more kids can be served in an inclusive manner, and schools should be able to serve 99% plus of kids who apply to them. But there are kids who have specific severe disabilities, and it makes sense to have a specialized program for them. So therefore, some charters have a program for kids with significant autism, some have it for kids with significant emotional disabilities, others for those with significant cognitive disabilities. So no one school has all, but many schools have something. That way students get the support they need and it saves money. I do need to point out, though, that sometimes families don't choose charters because they feel traditional public school districts have more resources for their children or they might feel that a charter-specific focus isn't relevant to their child. Well, looking at our own district now, Kavitha, how do things rate here in D.C.? And how do we compare with with other places around the country? Well, I spoke with Lauren Miranda-Rim, the co-founder of the National Center for Special Education in Charter Schools. She says D.C. is one of the better places, but other jurisdictions are also doing well. The Massachusetts Department of Ed has been very proactive and thoughtful. Many years ago, they allocated a staff member to work in the charter office. It was focused on special ed. And they tried to be very thoughtful of balancing how do we monitor and hold schools accountable, but at the same time not just creating this rigid monitoring process that would burden the charter schools given the deregulation. One last one is New Orleans, positive progress in New Orleans and what's going on specifically around innovation and special ed, creating incentive funds for charters to create programs for uh, students with higher needs. She says while nationally things are improving, many school districts still have lots of room for improvement. Kavitha Cardoza is WAMU's special correspondent. Kavitha, thanks. Thanks for having me. Are you a parent of a child in local charter schools? How have you seen these schools deal with different kinds of learners? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Time for a break, but when we get back, adjusting to a new life after fleeing your home country. It was hard for her to accept that there was other family members, because in El Salvador, she was the only child, so she got all the attention. And a 20-something Marylander shows us the realities of a job many millennials think is cool. Yeah, we work hard, and we work a lot of hours, and it's physically and emotionally demanding, but all of those things make it fun, too. That and more coming your way as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We're calling today's show The Next Generation. In just a bit, we'll meet a seventh-generation farmer in the D.C. suburbs, and we'll hear from a young harmonica player whose career is taking off. 
First, though, over the past 15 months, nearly 9,000 unaccompanied minors from Central America reunited with their relatives in Maryland, Virginia, and the district. And for many of these young people, settling into life in the U.S. with relatives they may have not seen in years, if ever, hasn't been easy. Armando Truel has the story on how these children and their parents are learning to cope with the many challenges of reunification. It's 7 p.m. on a weekday, and about a dozen Latino parents are gathered at La Clinica del Pueblo, which means a people's clinic in Spanish. For the past 20 years, the Columbia Heights nonprofit has been serving the health needs of Washington's immigrant community. The class is part of the Mi Familia, My Family workshop, which is managed by Catalina Sol. Mi Familia was born right after the 9-11 attacks uh, when people in our community basically who had experienced um, war and violence in Central America and were suffering from PTSD had uh, many feelings and crises related to the attacks. The sight of a burning Pentagon, heavily armed soldiers at key intersections in Washington, and the general anxiety created by 9-11 and its aftermath re-traumatized these refugees who had fled Central America's brutal civil wars. Fast forward to today, and it's not the parents attending these sessions who have suffered the larger trauma. Now it's the children and the teens who are coming with their own baggage and experiences of violence uh, and trying to integrate those while integrating into their new families. Fourteen-year-old Magali Ochoa is almost a textbook case. Her father, Ever, left El Salvador and came to Washington, D.C. a few months before Magali was born. She was raised by her paternal grandmother. The teen was reunited with her father last May, when Magali came to Washington, D.C. illegally. She left El Salvador after being harassed and then threatened by gang members in her hometown, La Unión, one of the most gang-ridden areas of El Salvador. The gang came looking for me at my house, she says. Ever scraped $6,500 to smuggle the daughter he'd never met to America. But the teenager was kidnapped as she crossed the Mexico-U.S. border. My daughter wound up in the hands of a group called the Zeta Cartel, says Ever. He was told if he didn't pay an additional $5,000, he would never see Magali. Panicked, Ever packed his entire family in a car and drove from Washington all the way to Houston. He says while negotiating with the kidnappers, he considered driving to McAllen, where his daughter was being held. But his friends took away his car keys, telling him if he did that, he and his daughter would most likely be killed. Magali was released after a month. The girl won't say much about what happened to her. Ever is now guilt-ridden and angry over what transpired. To help my daughter, in one way or another, I had financed her capture. For Magali, a new country, meeting the father she never knew, as well as a stepmother and three step-siblings, hasn't been easy. I miss my grandma very much, she says. Sometimes she looks at us as if we were strangers, and I understand, says Ever. 
This is Magali's stepsister, 11-year-old Cristina. It was hard for her to accept that there were other family members because in El Salvador, she was the only child, so she didn't get, she got all the attention. As part of the therapy, the Ochoas are learning how to cope with negative emotions this situation has brought about. This is Ariel, Cristina's twin. I'm learning about stress and how to calm yourself when you're mad. So you gotta inhale and then exhale uh, how many times you want, but you have to count it in your head. You gotta exhale and inhale. And that's gonna keep you from getting angry? Yes. Magali is among the more than 5,000 unaccompanied minors that during the past 15 months have been reunited with their families. Families that in many cases are struggling emotionally and financially with the burdens of a newcomer. This uh, surge of unaccompanied minors basically highlights the need for interventions like this that have learned over 10 years or more how to assist families with that process. The problem, says Sol, is there aren't enough resources to provide these interventions to the hundreds, perhaps thousands of local families that could benefit from them. I'm Armando Truel. We're going to head north now to Howard County, Maryland, to meet 27-year-old Nora Christ. Nora's family, the Clarks, have been raising cattle and growing wheat in Ellicott City since 1797. Nora grew up on the family farm, but she says her mother, Martha Clark, encouraged her and her brother to make their own choices. Go work somewhere else. Go live somewhere else. Go experience something else. I don't want you to grow up on this farm, stay on this farm, work and live on this farm. I want you to see more. Nora listened to her mother, but she didn't exactly obey. Emily Berman brings us her story. Nora Christ lives in the house she grew up in. It's a three-bedroom farmhouse nestled in the woods. And other than her dog, Ella, she's got it all to herself. It's huge. It's way too big for me. (laughs) Nora leads the way to the basement, where grow lights hang low over trays of sprouting peppers, eggplant, tomatoes, kohlrabi, and more. In, you know, a couple of weeks, all of these will have green things coming out of them, and it'll just feel really alive in here, which is nice and exciting. Farming is having a bit of a moment right now. A lot of people Nora's age would say it's a cool job. But having grown up on a farm, she knew better than to think farming meant frolicking with animals in a meadow. It's really, really hard work. And originally, she didn't want to do it. She started college with a major in equine studies to ride and raise horses, but she returned to the farm every summer to help her grandfather, James Clark Jr., run the produce stand. My grandfather taught me how to count. He taught me how to uh, make change, and we were never allowed to use a calculator or write it down. We had to do it in our head. And though she'd always thought of herself as shy, by watching her grandfather interact with the customers, she learned to open up. So I was kind of, um, you know, repeating things they did and being outgoing and friendly and joking and just making that person feel comfortable. And they, they maybe they'll buy a little more. She was her best self on the farm and also felt a great responsibility to care for the property. Her grandfather created one family commandment, never sell the land. He's buried on the farm. And that credo is engraved on his headstone. We have the never sell the land etched in stone here. 
to a constant reminder, <laughs> uh, in a good way, to value this land and this farm and um, appreciate it. From Nora's basement, we head outside. Down the hill is where she keeps the pigs. And up a ways, where we're headed, that's where the chickens and goats live. These are my laying hens. And uh, that's their egg mobile. That's where they sleep and lay eggs. Two furry dogs run over to say hi. These are my guard dog puppies. Hi, babies! Inside a small barn, there's a herd of goats. These ones were both born a week ago. These goats will eventually be sold for meat, but for now, they're just pets. In the five years since Nora moved back here, the farm has started selling more products, including grass-fed beef. Then, you know, customers started asking for eggs. And I said, hmm, well, maybe I'll get some chickens for myself and see how it goes. And the eggs were delicious. And what goes with eggs? Bacon. So then I can have pigs. The animal farming is Nora's business. But she sells the meat out of a store at her mom Martha's petting farm. We head over to find Martha painting the store's floor. I think I've painted every building uh, on this farm at least once or twice. All the snow this winter made it difficult to prepare for the farm's opening on April 1st. And if you've been to the petting farm, you probably remember the colorful artifacts from the Enchanted Forest. That was a Disney-esque theme park that opened in 1955 in Ellicott City. It closed years ago, but parents still get a kick out of seeing the sculptures when they bring their kids to the farm. Before all the visitors get here, there's a lot of work to do. We have to have our pond tour set up and our garden tour set up, get our our plants planted in our garden, make sure all the tractors and wagons are uh, serviceable. There are school tours planned and tons of birthday parties lined up, as many as 12 a day in the summertime. Yeah, we work hard and we work a lot of hours and it's physically and emotionally demanding, but all of those things make it fun. Farm life is quiet. Definitely not the choice of most millennials who flock to major cities. Nora says she plans to carry on the family tradition and push the business to new heights. I think the petting farm will get more popular. I'd like to have a a steady supply of meat and vegetables for our customers and to just really build that community of, of shopping straight from the farm. Sounds good. She's got me worn out. (laughs) As the sixth and seventh generation of Clark farmers, they're proud the farm's thriving and that they're the ones who get to take care of it. I'm Emily Berman. You can see photos of Nora Christ's newborn goats on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, time to knock on some doors with our ongoing journey around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Sterling Park, Virginia, and Galesville, Maryland. My name is Jim Chandler, and I live in Galesville, Maryland. Galesville is about 12 miles south of Annapolis, along the bay, one of many bayside communities on the rivers that feed into the Chesapeake Bay. It's on a peninsula, so you don't get cut through traffic here. People come to Galesville to come to Galesville. The attraction for, for Galesville is the proximity to the water. Everybody's within a short walk to the water that lives out here on this peninsula. At one time, there were a lot more uh, 
watermen in the area. And so uh, I found this piece of property that still had a working waterman off of it and the creek opens out in the West River. It's very protected. I have a wonderful view off my back porch that looks all the way across the bay to Shadyside. I wouldn't say Galesville's a throwback, but the sign coming into the town says where the past meets the present and the future. And, and that's kind of really what happens here. There's an old feel to this area. On the 4th of July, there's a parade down Main Street where the, the knitting guild or people will ride their lawnmowers. This is a, a very welcoming place. All the neighbors are neighbors. Everybody is interested in, in you. They speak to you on the sidewalk. It's uh, def definitely a, a neighborhood. My name is Christy Love. I live in the Sterling Park neighborhood in Virginia, and I've lived here for 15 years. Sterling Park is located in the very eastern side of Loudoun County, but it's right up against Fairfax County uh, in Northern Virginia between Route 7 and Route 28, and the toll road is very close by. Basically, it was called Guilford originally, and it was lots of farms. Loudoun County was very much farmland then. In fact, I think Dulles Airport used to be a dairy farm, that area. Back in the um, early 60s, uh, when they started planning Dulles Airport, a group came in to build here in and created Sterling Park with kind of some inexpensive tracked housing for um, folks coming in to actually work on the airport. We've got a beautiful park right down the road, Claudemore Park. I actually am the co-director of the Farm Museum that's in the park. You know, 367 acres of parkland. We've got recreation centers, uh, wonderful schools. I really love the community. Um, in fact, my husband and I keep looking at the house and going, okay, well, if we can't get around our house anymore, is there any possible way to put an addition on this level that we could still stay in the house, you know, without the stairs? Because it's just got everything. We heard from Christy Love in Sterling Park and Jim Chandler in Galesville. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, a 12-year-old harmonica player with perfect pitch and a bright musical future. We weren't calling it perfect pitch at the time. He, we were just really impressed that before he was one, that he was playing on this little toy piano and playing, you know, three, four-note melody songs. And a 28-year-old entrepreneur who could change your texting life forever. I wanted to text him, hey, for some reason I keep missing your calls. But AutoCorrect changed it to, hey, for some reason I keep missing that part of the male anatomy that rhymes with calls. <laughs> Those stories are just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're paying tribute to the youngins among us with a show we're calling The Next Generation. This next story was inspired by an entrepreneur in her 20s and her mission to save us from ourselves. We'll hear from her in just a moment, but to set things up here, tell me if the following has ever happened to you. 
You're on your smartphone. You type out a text. You hit send. And then immediately, you wish you hadn't. Every day, Americans send more than six billion texts. So it's no wonder incidents of text regret are on the rise. Take what happened to Sho Song. He's a pediatrician in Washington, D.C., and a little while back, he had to visit Chicago for one night for work. He had plans to meet up with a friend there, but he was exhausted when he got to town, so he canceled. Later on, though, he took himself out for ramen. And the next day, she texts me and she says, oh, hey, how was your night? And without even thinking, I said, oh, hey, it was great. I had had a great bowl of ramen at, at this restaurant. And that was definitely a text that I would like back. Liz Odar is familiar with that feeling. She lives in Arlington, Virginia, and as we in the D.C. region know all too well, the winter has been particularly brutal. So when her mom texted her from Florida with a photo of seagulls flocking on a sunny, sandy beach, Liz kind of snapped. I walked to my front door and I flipped off the snow and the cold air and took a picture of it. She texted her mom the picture along with the words, here's a bird of my own. Almost immediately, like after I hit send, I thought, oh no, is my mom going to think that I'm flipping her off? Like, no, 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 (laughs) no. We're moving so quickly, we're multitasking that we don't necessarily give things that second thought of, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. That's D.C. resident Macy Peterson, who at the ripe age of 28 is CEO and co-founder of On Second Thought. Download this new app to your phone, hit send on a text, and you'll have up to 60 seconds to decide if you really want it to leave your phone. My grace period is seven seconds, which means that after hitting send, I have seven seconds to swipe left to get my message back. Peterson was motivated to create On Second Thought after experiencing her own text regret. A few years back, for one reason or another, she'd been missing calls from her ex-boyfriend. So I wanted to text him, hey, for some reason I keep missing your calls. But autocorrect changed it to, hey, for some reason I keep missing that part of the male anatomy that rhymes with calls. (laughs) Now you can also download apps like Tiger Text or Strings, which let you erase a message after it goes out. Strings creators claim once you delete a text, it's truly gone, not stored on a cloud server somewhere. But if you ask Alison Druin what she thinks about using one of these apps, it is a crutch. Druin is the chief futurist at the University of Maryland's College of Information Studies. You may also know her as the computer gal on the Kojo Nambi show's Tech Tuesday. Druin's worry is we'll become too reliant on apps like On Second Thought. Instead of stopping people from doing the wrong thing, how can we help people learn to communicate in more appropriate ways? One way is by thinking more carefully about what we put out there and how quickly we do it. We have tools that led us instantly send things, tell things that we never could in the past. So as I get older, I don't get wiser. I get more cautious. That means resisting the urge to overshare, which she believes more and more of us are falling victim to. It's just like being a kid and knowing that I drew this, but it's really not real until I put it on the refrigerator. And when mom puts it on the refrigerator, it's real. Sho Song, our ramen-loving, text-regretting pediatrician, also thinks oversharing is far too abundant in our society. So he says, sure, an app like On Second Thought could be helpful. But I think a better exercise might be to just force yourself to think twice before hitting send. Having those moments where you are confronted with something that you don't feel proud of can be healthy in small doses. 
And he should know. After texting his friend that comment about going out for ramen, he spent the next handful of texts apologizing. So remember Liz Odar's text to her mom, the one about presenting a bird of her own? She took a screenshot for us, and if you can take a joke, you can see it on our website, metroconnection.org. And now we ask you, what do you think is the best way to avoid text regret? Downloading an app or just thinking before hitting send? Let us know by sending not a text, but a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Rock Noceris, Mr. Knickknack, Groovy Nate. Many parents of young children have heard of these purveyors of kitty tunes. But if you grew up around these parts, you were likely entertained by another guy, a man named Barry Lewis Polisar. Elizabeth Weinstein brings us the story of a homegrown children's entertainer whose career is hotter than ever. For 40 years, Barry Lewis Polisar has carved out a rarefied niche as an offbeat songwriter, author, and entertainer a one-man symphony of comic anarchy, according to the Baltimore Sun. Polisar uses satire and his own brand of witty, sometimes scatological writing to deliver lessons on life, love, and learning from a kid's perspective. I remember when I first began performing, Um, There were a lot of songs that were teaching kids manners, teaching kids, you know, how to cross the street, teaching kids how to how to behave. And and in a funny way, 40 years later, it's still that. But now it's teaching them the new political correct view of the world. And I think as a writer, as a satirist, as a humorist, um, there's a there is a degree of edginess that I have that I that I that I need to write. That edginess is regularly on display in his performances at schools across the Washington region, from wealthy suburbs to the neediest neighborhoods. And it's produced some of the highest and lowest points of his career. In 1990, Anne Arundel County banned Polisar from performing in its schools, a move school officials quickly reversed after an outpouring of public support. Still, the negative press took its toll. Some people started to think of him as controversial, a problem he says stemmed from a misunderstanding of his writing. I'm not really sugarcoating bad behavior, and that was the issue in Anne Arundel County as well. Uh, they thought that because I was making fun of, of, of kids that misbehaved, but if you, if you actually analyzed my songs, if you actually sat down and read the words, every time a kid does something bad, the mean teacher song, you know, you know, she, she, you know, he's complaining about the mean teacher and, and whenever she calls on him, he says, ok, ok, diddy, wop, dicky, picky, poo, you know, he talks gibberish. But the last line is the kid stays in first grade. I've got a teacher, she's so mean, she never laughs, she always screams, she says, do what I said. But if you ask me, she's crazy in the head. Using humor to let his audience connect their own dots has brought new generations of fans to his website, where Polisar makes all his books and albums available for free. Sharing his material is part of a philosophy of thinking little, and that philosophy has led to big things. 
In 2007, Hollywood director Jason Reitman used Polisar's 1977 love song, All I Want Is You, in his movie Juno, a career jolt that brought Polisar worldwide exposure. If I was a flower growing wild and free, all I'd want is you to be my sweet honeybee. And if I was a tree growing tall and green, all I'd want is you to shade me and be my leaves. Polisar's music is now heard on everything from Volkswagen and Del Monte ads to a tribute album with covers of his songs by bands like the Radioactive Chicken Heads. And for longtime fans, that's like sharing a special piece of their childhood with the world. My favorite song of Barry Lewis Polisar was My Brothers Threw Up on My Stuffed Toy Bunny, but you better not laugh because it really isn't funny. My brother threw up on my stuffed toy bunny. You better not laugh because it really isn't funny. Although I don't think that ever really happened. Uh, again, this was bodily functions and humor that I got down with. That's Daniel Schwartz, a local children's entertainer and sound engineer who grew up with Polisar's albums. Schwartz, who finally met Polisar in 2010, says he remains a personal and professional role model. It just speaks to a kind of person that wants to um, spread joy and laughter and education and, you know, give kids something to root themselves in um, musically that they'll build upon. And then they, you know, from if Barry Lewis Polisar was your first musical influence, maybe the next thing you found was the Beatles and his melodies and his ways of stringing together songs gave you a foundation to appreciate the music that's really important. Polisar is now 60 and continues to do what he loves best. He's got dozens of concerts booked this spring alone. He says the accolades are just icing on a weird, wonderful cake. A lot of times these kids, especially in these sort of low-income schools, will always ask me if I'm rich. And they always say yes, because I make a living doing something I really love doing. You know, this is, yes, this, this is my living. This is how I earn my, my income. But it's also something that I, I love doing. I'm Elizabeth Weinstein. Are you a Barry Lewis Polisar fan? You can link to more of his music on our website, metroconnection.org. So while we're talking music, our next story is about a 12-year-old boy for whom music is a way to connect with the world. Coastal reporter Brian Russo has the story. If you ask anyone who attended the 22nd annual Fiddler's Convention in Berlin, Maryland this past September, this was probably the moment they remember. Singer-songwriter Frankie Moran strumming his guitar as his 12-year-old son Cole plays the harmonica. Their performance brought hundreds of people to their feet and many others to tears. And it wowed the judges enough to earn a second place prize. Cole waved to the audience as he left the stage, but he couldn't see the joy his music had brought the audience. That's because Cole Moran was born blind and was soon diagnosed with Charge Syndrome. It's a rare pattern of birth defects that can cause heart and breathing problems, along with a range of other medical conditions. Here's Cole's dad, Frankie. Well, he's got cognitive delays, so he's, he's on a much slower learning level. He has apraxia, so he didn't start speaking until he was five. He was born with one kidney and scoliosis, early onset scoliosis. 
To be closer to Cole's doctors, the Moran family left the eastern shore and moved to a Baltimore suburb, where Cole undergoes several surgeries a year on his spine and also attends the Maryland School for the Blind. But despite all the things he struggles with, Cole has perfect pitch. That rare ability to identify the pitch of a musical tone without an external reference pitch. Frankie and his wife Jenny realized this early on, before Cole could even walk. We weren't calling it perfect pitch at the time. We were just really impressed that before he was one, that he was playing on this little toy piano and playing, you know, three, four-note melody songs. Um, You know, I'd, I'd show him pecking out with one finger, and then he would take over and start doing the same thing. Now, he would miss a little bit, but as soon as he missed, he would go back and find that right note. Wow. And that's how we figured it out. Music quickly became the way Frankie could bond with his son, since his dreams of taking him surfing or playing ball in the backyard had crumbled under the reality of his son's disabilities. Anywhere I was in the house, if I was playing an instrument, that's where he went. Wow. You know, If I was sitting up on a sofa or a chair, he would use that to climb up and, hmm. and hold on to my leg and feel that instrument while I'm playing it. Or if I'm on the floor, he's partway in my lap and, and touching it and grabbing it and different things like that. Uh, so it was you know, very gratifying to know that he was getting some, some enjoyment out of that you mm. know, and, 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 uh, and really loved it, and I loved it too. At age three, Cole picked up the harmonica, and that became his instrument of choice. By age seven, he was turning heads with his playing. The harmonica became a way for a boy who can't see and has trouble communicating to connect with the world around him. Music really helped him come out of his shell, I think, and, and helped him sort of find his personality. Earlier this week, I met Cole and Frankie at Studio Unknown, the recording studio in Catonsville, Maryland, where Cole was finishing up his first record. He was most excited to show me his leather belt that holds all of his harmonicas. How many harmonicas does it hold? Eight. How many different keys do you have? A, B, C, D, D, E, E, F, Wow. That's a lot of harmonicas. Yeah, all of them. So tell me your favorite thing about playing the harmonica. What do you like about Whiskey it? Whiskey before breakfast. Whiskey before breakfast. Will you play that for me? Are you ready? son duo now perform under the name Blind Wind, and their fan base is growing with every show. Frankie says the big demand for a CD of Cole's music prompted the recent studio sessions. Those recordings will be released in April. I could have never imagined being at this point in my life and and having my son at at such a young age in his life being so well-versed and trained to do this with me at this level. What, what's it like to record a song? You have to play it like a bunch of times in a row, right? Do you like... Re- oh, 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 it keeps repeating. Keeps repeating. Yeah. It's repeating. It's repeating. Repeat. Oh, 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 repeat. Different than a stage show, right, buddy? It's repeating. Yeah, yeah. He, he didn't like all the repeating, having to play it over. He figured, I did it, did it once, good, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> but playing for an audience is something Cole Moran never finds to be repetitive. It's his greatest joy to play, and it's become his father's greatest joy, not just to watch him perform, but to play with him. Man, I, it's, it's a dream come true, really. And, and if you just were to look at Cole at first glance, you wouldn't think much is going on there. But people who know Cole, and it doesn't take you long to get to know him, know how much energy he has, how much excitement he has, 
how much he just loves life and loves to have fun and loves music and loves playing music for people. Uh, he loves the applause. He loves it. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? And it's a good thing, too, because applause is something Cole Moran is going to hear for as long as he's making music with the harmonicas he wears with pride on his cool leather belt. I'm Brian Russo. You can see a video of Cole and his father playing the song you're hearing right now, Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash. Just visit our website, metroconnection.org. And while you're there, you can also find out how to see the duo perform live. Again, it's all at metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Kavitha Cardoza, Armando Truel, Brian Russo, and Elizabeth Weinstein. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. John Hines produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you just want to check out previous editions of Metro Connection, head to our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our weekly podcast or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we explore perseverance. We'll hear how a Maryland town of 13 people has managed to hold on We'll pound the pavement with the youngest runner to complete a marathon in all 50 states. And we'll talk with Russian immigrants determined to create a new life in the D.C. region. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.